Before we tackle this, um, these few verses, I think it's helpful to have a little bit of a background to the book of Hebrews so you have some understanding since we're just jumping here in the middle of the book. And so let me begin by, by just giving a brief background. The, the author of the book is uncertain. Many people, Bible scholars think it was written by the Apostle Paul. And it obviously has an intended audience of the Hebrews, which are Jewish people. These are people who would say, my ancestor is Abraham. So they go back to that family tree, and they, they're familiar with all of the Old Testament stories. And this particular author, very familiar with the Old Testament himself, which is why most people think it's Paul, he, he's got a target audience. This is a particularly designed for those Old Testament believers, those people who, who see and know God, the God of Abraham, and understand the Old Testament. And the main objective for the author is to tell the reader that Jesus is better. All of these Old Testament shadows, all of these Old Testament small little arrows are pointing to this one thing that we've now been able to see, and that's Jesus, and he's better. He's better than everything in the Old Testament. And so if you just would sort of walk through the first few chapters, chapter 1, Verses 1 through 3, Jesus is better than all the Old Testament prophets. Chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter 4, Jesus is better than Joshua. Chapter 5, Jesus is better than Aaron and the high priest. He's better. All of these things were just signals. They're all pointers, all shadows of the real thing to come. And then throughout his exaltation of Jesus, he exhorts his congregation and and he breaks into what I'm going to call his spiritual fitness coach voice. He he sees his congregation and you know how like a, a fitness coach does? They're supposed to come in there and sort of have the right level of encouragement and pressure. Too much pressure, you crack, not enough encouragement, you quit. And so he's like this spiritual fitness coach. He, he wants, he's saying it's better, but then he knows he's got to kind of stop, get outside of that saying it's better and walk alongside of his congregation and say, don't give up. Don't, don't cave in. Don't grab for something else. It's just like your spiritual, it's just like your fitness coach. Just one more rep, one more day, one more effort. Don't, don't quit now. You've got your hands on the real thing. Don't let go of Jesus. He's better and he's worth it. And he does this several different times. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Oh, don't have a hold of the real thing and then just slowly lose your grip and drift away. Chapter 3, again, after he's exalted Jesus, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart that you're led away, that you would fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day. Hold on to your original confidence all the way to the end. One more example, Hebrews 10. Let us hold unswervingly like that word. Just just hold on. Don't don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Hold on to that hope that we profess. And then he says spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 
I mean, we've got something that's better, and I want you to hold on. And while you're holding on, grab a hold of the passenger and say, let's keep going together. Let's, let's hold on. Let's spur one another on towards loving good deeds. And all the more as we see Jesus approaching. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's better. I'm telling you, he's better. You've trusted that he's better. But don't drift away. Don't, don't loosen your grip. Hold on. So this morning, I want you to consider this passage in my voice as your spiritual fitness coach. So you've come here today, and I'm, I'm not primarily co- concerned about teaching you that Jesus is better. I'm assuming that you've learned that from the, from the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to hold on. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to loosen your grip. I don't want you to drift. I, don't want, you to, I want you to be aware of the dangers that might cause you to fall away. To shift off the rock of the foundation or the foundation of the rock onto the sand. So let's, let's begin by just briefly looking at these uh, few verses, verses 4 through 6. This is the disruptive warning. And in this disruptive warning, he's saying, you know, it's possible that once you've been enlightened, notice the, the terms here, you've been enlightened, you've tasted the heavenly gift, You you probably meaning communion, you've taken communion. So you've been enlightened. You have some knowledge of of the gospel. You've professed something. You've you've tasted the heavenly gift. You're you're taking communion. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of God and God's power. But but these some of these people are going to fall away. Some of these people in, in this man's congregation are authentic. And some of them are well camouflaged. Because just like the houses, you can't tell the difference from the outside. They have, I mean, this sounds like a pretty good resume to me. I mean, I, I've, I've been enlightened. I've ta- I take communion. I've tasted. I understand the power of God. I understand the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is, I've seen the Holy Spirit's power. This, this sounds like, check. I'm checking every box. But what's disruptive is that some people check all these boxes and yet they're falling away. They don't really have their house built on the rock of Jesus. They have their house built on themselves or something else. And he's he's watched people in his congregation who looked like they were the real thing. They looked like the authentic. But it turned out to be they were just camouflaged. And so then he goes on to give what I would say are three warning signs of spiritual drifting and danger. So that's what I want to spend most of our time talking about here. Three signs of spiritual drifting or danger. How do I know? How do I know if I've got my life on the rock? How do I know if I'm uh, not holding on? How do I know if I'm drifting? How do I know if I'm in danger He gives us three things for us to think about. And these are the things I want you to consider for your own spiritual health. First, verses 7 and 8. He gives a a two-line visual aid or a parable. He's been talking about these people who have drifted away. And then he just gives this two-verse parable. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, it produces a crop that's useful. And it receives a blessing from God. But then there's another land that bears thorns and thistles, and it's worthless, and it's going to be cursed, and it's going to be burned. 
So, so the rain is, uh, the, the rain has fallen on these two lives. The lives are the land, the plot of land. And God's goodness is falling on both plots of land. And one receives the rain and produces fruit and people are helped by it. But the other one produces uh, vines that have thorns and thistles. It chokes out any meaningful growth. And just immediately, if you're, if you're a decent Bible student, you just immediately go to the parable that Jesus talked about, do you not? The, the parable of the farmer and the sower. And the farmer comes out and he's sowing the seed and he's sowing it on different plots of land. And there's four different types of land that this farmer is sowing on. First, we have the hard soil. Then we have the rocky soil. Then we have good soil at the end. But what's the third one? The third one is it's on a land that's full of vines, it's full of thorns and thistles. And so when the seed of God's word tries to grow, it gets choked out and never really bears any fruit. And Jesus then tells us, what are those three things that choke out life? When God's goodness comes down, when, when the gospel falls on the life or your land, how is it going to be choked out? He gives us three things. Worries of this life. You see the gospel, you hear the gospel, you want to respond to the gospel, but I'm so worried about my life. I'm so consumed by everything that's happening in my life or what could be coming my way in my life. And we talked about this is so great from the Sermon on the Mount. When he talked about anxiety, remember how we used that uh, illustration from the I Love Lucy show? Where she's, you know, she's got the chocolates that are coming down the conveyor belt and she's easily wrapping them up and putting them in the box and, and then the conveyor belt speeds up and there's more chocolates and, and she starts stuffing them in her mouth and she puts them in her hat. And that's what we do. We speed up the worries of our life. We say, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? And we just get dumped on all of this anxiety and we can't handle it and it chokes off the gospel. We can't really be consumed by Jesus because we're consumed by the care, the cares and worries of our life. Secondly, another kind of vine that grows is the deceitfulness of wealth. Again, we talked about that. How much more does everybody need? Just a little bit more. And it's like a mirage. It keeps moving. And you think, I've got a lot, but if I just had a 10% more then I'd be okay, and you never, you never reach that. And that's like a vine that chokes out the gospel. Finally, it's the third kind of vine, desire for other things. This means over-desires. You've taken a good thing, a good desire, and made it a God thing. Man, you can do that with anything you want. Lots of great gifts God made you to enjoy. But then you say, I can't live without it. You've made a good thing a God thing. And all these things, they're like vines that grow around your soul. And they, they choke off God's word. They're the thorns and thistles that the, the writer is writing about in chapters 7 and 8. There's a great gardening blog with this name. It's called The Grumpy Gardener. And I thought... You spent your life pulling out weeds. You'd be grumpy too. But the grumpy gardener, and he recently posted this article, five monster vines you must never plant. 
And I'm like, okay. And then this is the opening line to his article. Vines can be beautiful additions to the garden, but some of them are rampaging monsters. Here are five rampaging monsters you should never plant. If you value your home, if you value your environment, or you value your sleeping cat. I mean, these things are so, so growth hungry that if your cat falls asleep before it wakes up, the vine's going to overtake the cat. Such a great writer. And he goes on to say, these are so attractive. These vines are so beautiful. You are going to be tempted to plant them. And you're going to think, if I just plant them in these little places, I can sort of prune them and I can enjoy the plant without it really overtaking. And you can't. And that's exactly what the writer is saying. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. You think, oh, this little issue with wealth or this little issue with anxiety or this little issue with with worry. You think, well, it's just a little plant over here and I basically prune it back every once in a while and it's okay. And it's consuming your soul. You have a monster vine that's running through your life and choking out the word of God and you're in danger You're in spiritual danger of drifting away. It looked like you had a hold of what was real, but really the vines came in and just broke up your soul. And you're in danger. Second danger, besides the the thorns and thistles of our lives, verse 9 now, now he's turning to his congregation. Though we speak in this way, he's given this uh, disruptive verse and parable. And he says, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to you in this way, but yet in your case, I love this verse, beloved. We, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I love this verse because it's about encouragement. He says, yes, there is a real danger of being a a camouflaged Christian, but I'm a pastor of this congregation, and I've seen things. I've actually seen things that have to do with salvation. And so he comes in, he says he feels sure because he's seen their faith in action, things that belong to salvation, things that are a part of a redeemed life. He's been able to see the fruits of the Spirit come out in these people's lives. They're actually displaying love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He's seen it. He's seen it firsthand. So the, so the second part of spiritual danger, I, I want to say it in two ways. First, I want to ask you a question, and then I want to offer you an encouragement. One, can someone else come in to your life, someone else who has a genuine relationship with Christ, and say what this person just said? Hey, I've seen things. I've really seen a change. I mean, the, 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 the preacher isn't saying his congregation is perfect. He's just saying, I'm seeing progress. I'm seeing things that belong to salvation, things that I didn't see before. Now I'm seeing them in your life. And my question is, do you have somebody who can come in and positively identify things that are good Good things that are growing in your life. Do you have that? Now, I thought you could say, 
well, I just don't have anyone who can honestly give me feedback about my spiritual condition. I, I think I'm growing, but I really don't have a kind of relationship that somebody could sort of peer into my life and say, Paul, I, I see those things. I would say you're in danger. You're in danger because this life wasn't meant to live in isolation. You cannot possibly hold on to the end if you don't have somebody encouraging you along the way. It's just not built. You're not built that way. You just can't carry that weight all by yourself. So please, you must get into some kind of community group with Sam or some place where somebody can really positively identify, I see change in your life. I've seen this fruit. I've seen things that belong to salvation. And what an encouragement that would be. Or you could say, well, I have people like that. They just don't ever identify any progress. Oh, you're in danger. You've got really godly people that surround you. They just never identify any progress. So you want to ask yourself, why Why is that? So that's my question. You're in spiritual danger if you don't have anybody. You're in spiritual danger if you have people, but they don't ever say, I see growth. I wonder why that is. But here's my encouragement is just like this writer takes a moment to pause and say, though I'm speaking in this way, yet in your case, beloved, this this passionate desire to be an encouragement, my encouragement to you is to increase your encouragement in identifying that in other people. I'm not asking you to be disingenuous to just go out today and pick on somebody and say, you're awesome. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody, you saying, I do see things in people. I just don't regularly say it. And I want you to say, say it. Say it. People are dying. They're, they're, they're a sponge that never gets too full of encouragement. I never had anybody say, Paul, I'm just so tired of encouragement. Can you save it? You know, maybe next month I'll be in need. No, no one's ever said that they're dying for somebody to notice they've done something. So I'm not asking you to be disingenuous, but I'm asking to say, step up. Step up in your encouragement. When you see something in somebody, it may be a small thing. Look, all of us live small little lives. We don't live on grand stages. We live at home. We live at work. We live in our neighborhood. And small little changes, you need to amplify. You need to say, I see things that belong to salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul was an ace at this. If you notice in all of his letters, and he starts out almost in every letter saying, I'm so encouraged by your faith, I see things. And then he identifies these things. And he does this so well to, to his friend Timothy. He starts out his letter saying this, I have been reminded of your sincere faith. So Timothy is, is this uh, person in the wings for Paul. Paul's going to drift off the scene. Timothy's going to, young Timothy's going to come in and take his place. And the great apostle Paul in his last letter, he says this, Timothy, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice. And I'm persuaded now it lives in you. Now, I've read this verse many times. 
And almost every time, I just read right by it. Okay, he's got a grandmother who's faithful. He's got a mom who's faithful. And he was encouraged by it and move on. I bet Timothy read this a thousand times. This might have been the most meaningful part of a great letter. The Apostle Paul is identifying faith in me. He's seen it. What I look, 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 what I saw in my grandmother and mother, he's actually seen it in me. I just think he grew a foot just reading that opening line. Because somebody took the time, just one line of encouragement to say, I, I see this, I, I see it. And imagine the fuel that gave to Timothy to go keep going. One, one last note on this need for encouragement. These uh, symptoms of spiritual drifting. You've got uh, thorns and thistles. You've got some vine growing in your life or vines. It's choking off the gospel. Or secondly, you don't have somebody in your life who can be an encouragement, can help you, hold you accountable, help you spur one another on. So critical. One last note here. John Newton, most of us know John Newton, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader before he met the Lord, and eventually he became a pastor. And if you ever read uh, John Newton's biography, it's really hard to read. Parts of it are hard to read. Most of us just think of him as the hymn writer of Amazing Grace. But the things that he writes about as a captain of a ship of slaves is pretty disturbing. And when he wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved saved a Wretch Like Me, he meant it. It wasn't sort of just this pious talk. He, He totally understood it 50 years after his conversion. He writes a letter to his friend. He's six years from death. He's been a pastor for 35 years. This is what he says. There have not been two hours in my waking life that I have not thought of what I did in Africa. Wow. I've been a pastor for 35 years. I've been away from that for 50 years. And at least in the span of every two hours, I think about that. So he needed to be constantly reminded of amazing grace. So you never get to where, I got it, I'm, I'm done, I'm good on grace. And some of us come, back, come off of terrible backgrounds. And you have stuff you will never forget. And it'll feel like it's never two hours away from me remembering that event or what I did. And what I'm saying is that when you're in that situation, you're dying for encouragement. Even if you've been a pastor for 35 years, for somebody to say, I know what you did, but I see these marks of salvation. That is hugely important. And it's the role of us to do that for each other. That's part of our role. So again, I'm not asking you to do false praise, but when you see it in someone, it is It's up to you to step in and step up and be an encouragement. Third and final sign here of spiritual 
drifting or danger. Verse 12, love this word, sluggishness. You ever find a slug? It's really kind of gross, isn't it? Because you don't know what to do. You wouldn't ever step on it. It could be on your shoe forever. You have to throw your shoe away immediately. You can't pick it up and move it because then you've got that goo on your hand. But it's going to be like a week before it moves. So you, you, know, you don't know what to do. It's moving so slow. It, it's, it's got all that, whatever that is, all that gunk on it. It can't move very fast no matter how hard you try to help it with a stick. I'm, I've seen people do that stuff. But but one great spiritual danger is sluggishness. You're slow to run away from your sin. It's got you trapped in some way, and you just think, yeah, it does, and tomorrow I'm going to take care of that. I want you to hear me say, Satan loves it when you say tomorrow. He rejoices. He might even give you the idea, say tomorrow. Because tomorrow, it's going to be tomorrow. Sluggishness is one of the seven deadly sins. And probably the best definition comes from the wisdom of Proverbs. Listen to what the the wise man says. I went past the field of a sluggard. Thorns had come up everywhere. See that same imagery. The ground was covered with weeds. The stone wall was in ruins. And I applied my heart to what I observed, and I learned this lesson. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands of rest, and poverty will come on upon you like a bandit. Scarcity like an armed man. So you just say spiritually, yeah, I'm in a sluggish place right now and I'll just fold my hands and say instead of getting up and reading God's word I'll hit the snooze button one more time I'll say hey I'll do it tomorrow from the Bible reading today Mark chapter 14 Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane remember what they say Jesus says can you pray for me He goes away three times. And what does he come back? Comes back and finds his top three apostles as slugs. They're all asleep. And he says, you have no idea the great temptation that's going to come on to you. And you must need to pray right now if you're going to have any success. And and just as when it's over, Peter is tempted three times by a young girl. Do you know Jesus? Answer, I never heard of Jesus. And it's come upon him like a bandit. So we don't want to be slugs. We don't want to see ourselves getting weighted down. And the answer to that is, and I'm going to close here with Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so which clings so closely. You see that picture? You've got to take it off. You've got to realize I've got to let go of these things that are trapping my soul and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And what am I doing? I'm looking at Jesus. Why? 
He's better. He's better than all these things that are trapping my soul. And so the answer to your sluggishness is run. Run towards Jesus. Don't say tomorrow. Say right now. You, the, the author is trying to say you have no idea how much danger you're in by not running right now. You can lose your soul by not running right now. I want to close with this little clip. So perfect for this, uh, this little um, passage. There's some island that they've gotten on this uh, BBC World animal, this animal planet stuff that you see. So excellent. And on the island, these iguanas, these lizards, lay their eggs in the sand. And they're underneath the sand. And then they, the hatchlings come up. And the very first thing that has to happen is when they come up, they have to run for the rocks. Because they're out in, the, they're exposed, and all these snakes live on the island. And they're like, yeah, hatchling comes up. Gobble, gobble, gobble. And what you have to do if you're a hatchling, you have to run. You have to run like your life is depending on it. And I want this picture to be burned into your mind so that when sin comes upon you, you don't stop, you run. You run, you keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's watch this together. A snake's eyes aren't very good, but they can detect movement. So if the hatchling keeps its nerve, it may just avoid detection. Miraculous escape. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I never really loved an iguana until that little Charlie started taking off. Like, yeah. Hey, but as you laugh, think about your soul. 
Everybody here is in this picture. And I don't know what your snakes are, but you might be entangled in a nest of them right now. And you have to run. You cannot give up. You have to keep going. You cannot do it by yourself. That is an impossibility. So my encouragement for you is just to identify, is there some thorns and thistles that have me weighed down and I can't move forward? Can you identify what that is? Two, can you find somebody who's going to help you? Might be me, might be Sam, might be a community group, might be an elder, might be your friend. I don't know who it is, but you've got to have somebody to help you out. You cannot do it by yourself. And I want you to hear me say, Jesus is better. I mean, I know that thing that's got you feels like it's awfully good right now, but it's going to choke the life out of you. And I don't want you to come down in a great fall. Let's pray together. Lord, um, you try to give us very simple pictures so we can understand danger. And whether it's a seed that falls in what looks like healthy soil, but as it grows, it gets choked out by a vine. Or whether it's a lizard on the beach being chased by snakes, we, we're all in spiritual danger here. And we need this encouragement from this writer to, to say, Jesus is better. Hold on. Don't give up. But we must have the encouragement of, of each other. Would you help us to be people who help weed each other's garden, help encourage each other, and to run, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.